Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Geek Warning from the Escape Collective. I'm James Huang, and I'm here with our full complement of tech editors today. Coming to us from Sydney, Australia is Dave Rome. Hi, Dave. Hello. And fresh off his brief but productive stint at the Tour de France is Ronan McLaughlin. Hi, Ronan. Hi, James. How's everyone doing today? Hmm. Tired. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, no, I will. Doing all right. Everyone hanging in there? I can't complain. I haven't been traveling the world like Ronan, so I, I really can't complain about tiredness. I mean, Ronan has at least been sort of staying on his home continent, right? Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's that's true. Um, I also don't want to undersell what I <laughs> the amount of walking <laughs> and traveling I did of late. So, um, yeah, technically speaking, same continent. Uh, also, technically speaking, walk to feed off myself. Which is great, you know. Um, if if there wasn't so much interesting stuff to see, I wouldn't have had to walk my the feet off myself. So, um, good good complaint to have, I think. Uh, you, I think it was what was it forty seven thousand steps at Eurobike? Forty seven and a half thousand, Dave. Come on, <laughs> sorry, I didn't want to undersell you there. Uh, how many at the tour? Uh, the tour is a different animal. Um, let me just check here, but the the numbers won't be the same. Um, I'm going to guess probably not as many steps, but a lot more sprinting. Uh, yes, yes, and then also a lot more just like sitting in the one place, frantically typing. Um, mm-hmm. So the the biggest day of the tour was stage one, unsurprisingly. And that was a twenty and a half thousand step day. Mm. Okay, so the pastry to step ratio is much higher at the tour versus Eurobike. The pastry to step ratio, yeah. Uh, well, actually, the cake to step ratio was also uh, on the up because it was um, oh. uh, it was it was Kaylee's birthday, uh, so we managed to ah, get him a hot yeah. wheels cake. I, we I did see that on the oh, uh, on, on the good. social media channels. Indeed, pretty pretty mm. funny. So, better question: Did you all eat the entirety of that cake? Uh, so everybody had a normal size slice and then I ate the rest. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, in, in typical Ronan fashion, well done. Well done. Okay. Well, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, given the timing, today's episode of Geek Warning is going to heavily focus on tour tech, but we've also got some interesting industry news to share and a couple of thought provoking discussion topics like how everything mountain bike related seems to be designed for e-bikes these days. Uh, but first, a word from this episode's sponsor, and that would be our own Escape Collective members. So as usual, Geek Warning is an ad-free podcast by our own choice, and it's only through everyone's membership dues that we're able to bring this to you each week. So please consider signing up if you're not already a member. And just as a reminder, if you're not sure you want to commit to a full annual membership, we also have a monthly option. And if you're already a member, thanks so much for supporting us. We really can't express how much we appreciate all of you. And if you love what you're getting in return, please tell your friends about us. So maybe just maybe some of them can become members too. We also want to give a special thanks to some of our lifetime members who each played a big role in getting this whole operation off the ground. So shout outs this week go to Richard Sachs. Yes, that Richard Sachs. Uh, the folks at Belgian ceramic bearing specialist Seabear. Uh, cycling and outdoor industry super PR and media relations pro Kate Geyer. Hi, Kate. Industry veteran Cam Whiting. And former Danish pro road and track racer Casper von Volsack, who is now working with the Uno X team. So thanks to all of you. We really couldn't have done this without you. All right. On with the show. All right. With the news. So, Ronan, we already talked earlier, uh, I think maybe even last week's episode, about some of the bikes that you spotted at the tour while you were there. And I think one that we didn't talk about with this was this new Ridley. Um, so we have no info on this thing whatsoever. Um, but what did you see? Um, not sure what I've seen. 
And <laughs> or, sh- or should I say, I'm not sure what I can say that I've seen and what I can't say that I've seen. Oh, uh, well, oh. I can I can say what I've seen. Uh, let's, and start, is, let's start with that. W- that is uh, what looks like a new sort of do-it-all, all-rounder sort of mixed lightweight and aero uh, platform from Ridley. Um, there was Maxim Van Hills and Caleb Ewan from the Lotto Destiny squad were both on this uh, new frame from Ridley. There's no stickers or there's no decals on the frame to indicate what the model name is and the UCI sticker on it still says prototype. So we have no real indication from the sightings we have at the tour what the name of this new frame is. Uh, but certainly it is not the Ridley Noah Fast and it is not the Helium. Uh, so we can sort of deduce from that that it is a new bike from from Ridley. And very much in the form of the way we're seeing a lot of manufacturers go now and that it's sort of the one bike solution for these World Tour teams who are you know doing sprint stages and mountainous stages uh, throughout the season. So uh, I like the look of it. Um, it does look pretty clean. Hmm, it does definitely. Um, and uh, I've been trying to find better pictures, but there's, uh, you know, obviously as, as the sizes change, uh, you will have different, slightly different geometries and all that. But uh, interestingly, I initially thought that Caleb Ewan and the other riders on this new frame were on on different new frames because Caleb Ewan's seat stays seem to. Uh, run the whole way up to the sort of where the, the top tube inter- intersects with the seat tube and a sort of, you know, traditional place for the seat stays to meet. Uh, whereas the other riders on this new frame seem to have, you know, more dropped seat stays. Um, so can't, haven't been able to confirm that just yet, but uh, maybe it's just, you know, in the in much smaller size that Caleb Ewan would obviously be riding, perhaps it's just a slight uh, tweak in, in that size. Hmm. So what can't you tell us? Um, everything that's in the, uh, <laughs> everything that's in the embargo in my, uh, inbox. Um, mm, okay. And I can't, it's not that I can't tell you just because of the embargo. It's also that I, uh, haven't read it yet. So <laughs> you've been a little busy running. You've been a little yeah. busy. <laughs> yeah. A little, a little bit, a little bit. I don't know if anyone has, is, is hearing that booming in the background, but I'm currently out on a, on a, thankfully a covered balcony recording this and, uh, there's a pretty good thunderstorm going on at the moment, so my apologies if you hear some booming. So uh, thankfully, I'm not getting wet, though. Anyway, um, all right, so not a whole lot to share on this new Ridley, unfortunately. Um, sounds like we'll learn more about it sooner than later. Uh, another thing that you spotted, though, that uh, seemingly we also don't really have any information about was these new wet conditions tires from Specialized. What do we have there? Uh, yeah, uh, these, it's not the first time these popped up. I think we first speculated about these, uh, during the Giro this year when there was some mention of wet tires, uh, and commentary of all the stages there. And when we went sort of investigating that, it seemed like Remco Vinopol did have wet weather specific tires. Uh, and then we heard reports that actually the Amazon Prime series following the Quick Quickstep last year at the tour, had some sort of reference during Eve Lampard's prologue win in the in the Tour de France last year, which was of course run off in wet conditions in Copenhagen. That uh, the apparently the director sportifs were there was mention of wet tires, and then the directors during Lampard's time trial were on the radio telling him to trust the tires, trust the tires, push it, push it, trust the tires. 
Um, I haven't been able to get any photos uh, that you could make out whether or not Eve Lampard did have the same tyres on back then or not. Uh, but certainly at this year's tour, despite the dry conditions on stage one and two, I was able to find these new turbo wet tyres on the the second car. Uh, so uh, Sudal Quick Steps. Uh, second support car uh, had these had these as spare wheel on the spare bikes on that second car and yeah find them quite interesting <clears throat> I mean I asked specialized about them of course didn't get much information um, didn't get any information really um, but you know just sort of just sort of running a, f- a finger across these um, compared to the compared to the, the normal turbo uh, tires that were on the race bikes they're they're they are a lot stickier or grippier or softer compound whatever you know whatever you want to describe that but noticeably an increased grip just you know just running a, a thumb or a finger across them so um the tread pattern seems pretty much identical to that mundo tire that specialized launched earlier this year um so yeah presumably whatever they've done there to make this a wet tire uh is all in the compound by the, by the looks of it yeah, someone mentioned, uh, I think maybe in our uh, Escape Collective private Discord channel, I think, or maybe it was in a comment, someone said something about how uh, kind of wet conditions, uh, car tires, I believe, uh, tend to have a higher silica content. So, I mean, that may be something here. I mean, if it doesn't look like there's something obvious that they've done with the tread pattern, then it must be something with compounding. Um, the so- one, The one thing Specialized would tell me is that they're only using you know, compounds and materials and ingredients, so to speak, that they're already using in other tires. They're just using them in different uh, combinations and, you know, uh, tweak here and a tweak there to the... So uh, take from that what you want. I guess the problem is with that statement that it doesn't tell us anything because tire <laughs> companies already do that anyway. So, yes. <laughs> well, yes. Well, e- either I mean, way... My, my question here is when are we going to see them uh if it if it transpires that lampard did have them in the tour last year that's a full 12 months on now um and with the whole commercialization regulations and all that uh surely we're going to see them well presumably pretty soon you would imagine seemingly any day now um what i'm curious about is um you know presumably if it's a wet conditions tire, if they're really only ideally using them in wet conditions, you would expect maybe that the tire probably has more rolling resistance than a dry conditions tire. Um, who knows what it is in terms of puncture protection with, the, with that kind of different rubber compound or whatever. Um, what I'm wondering, however, is sort of, you know, while, while teams and pro racers obviously would have use for a specific wet conditions tire, I, I'm wondering how much of a market there is in the consumer realm for a wet conditions tire i mean i guess like you know places like uk and certainly where you are running you spend enough time in the wet like would that would that be something that you would use oh 100 percent without for me personally yeah without a doubt um and i spoke with goodyear at Eurobike quite a bit and one of the things they were saying about their new tires is the improved wet grip um can't say i've been able to notice it yet having had a couple of wet rides on on the new goodyears um but they're certainly not you know they're not in the other direction. It's not an and it's not a but. <coughs> sorry, shouldn't they add the popcorn before we come on? 
Um, it's not a bad experience in the way that just, you know, it's not a noticeably, noticeably better experience. Um, if these tires were offering something like that, um, and again, just running a finger across them, they do seem so much grippier. Um, I would be keen to try that. Um, I also think in the right conditions, in the right race, that could be an absolute game changer. And that possibly for Eve Lampard in the Tour Prologue last year, when so many of the favourites were crashing out or having to snail it through corners. He was actually sort of on rails that day, uh, relatively speaking, considering the conditions. Um, and whatever increase in rolling resistance you have in a, on a course, city centre course like that, short distance, uh, presumably the extra grip is going to be uh, more than more than make up for that. I, I didn't get the, just to go back to when will we see these, I didn't get the impression from chatting to specialists that we are going to see them anytime soon. Hmm. Interesting. Um, although I guess I presumably for like the UK and Ireland markets and that sort of thing, uh, maybe they'll just be relabeled as, you know, the specialized turbo everyday tire. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> mm, yeah. We watched the forecast tonight and I asked my wife, is it uh, July or November? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, another thing that this tire kind of brought to mind is, uh, you know, in the mountain bike space, we already have situations where the same tread pattern is offered in multiple rubber compounds to suit either rider preference or local conditions or whatever. Um, that makes me wonder, especially with specialized in particular, having so many different compounds that they use on the mountain bike and the way that they're labeled and whatnot. Um, it makes me wonder if they might offer like, I mean, yeah, they could call one tire dry, one tire wet. Um, but I wonder if they could also presumably just label tires as having different levels of grip versus rolling resistance to suit whatever sort of situation you have. Their, their brandings are kind of uh, already aligned to that with the whole T5 and T3. And yeah, I mean, the, the way they kind of label their compounds already is well aligned to, to having the door open to that. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the approach they take. I mean, it would make sense. I mean, it'd be... Mm. It, it wouldn't be all that different. I mean, you know, from what formula one does already. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this will be familiar with that. Um, just as far as having a soft, medium, hard, or super soft compound. And you, know, you just choose the compound that's based on the situation at hand. Right. So, um, who knows? Maybe reptiles yeah. will go that way as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I also, I also think if you ask most everyday consumers whether they want more grip or less grip, I think they're going to pick the more grip, even if it comes at a speed penalty. Yep. You know, it's an, it's only going to be the the really discerning speed focused racer that that will care for a tire with less grip that might have a speed advantage for dry conditions. So, uh, I think yeah, this this could potentially become a, a pretty big seller for them i think for the general user the you know order of them when they're looking for a new tire the most important thing is puncture protection and then grip mm. and then yeah. lastly rolling resistance uh, and i think you know most of the time rolling resistance is a you know very distant third and and that's in those considerations yeah right i guess speed considerations in general it's kind of just more reliability and then security and then speed if you kind of maybe put it in more general terms but yeah, I mean, if, if if Lampart really did use those tires that long ago, then yeah, hopefully we'll find out some more about this soon. I, I, yeah, we ha we certainly haven't heard anything from Specialized yet, but this is the sort of thing where we don't necessarily always get a whole bunch of advance notice anyway. They just sort of just an email lands in our inbox, and there you go. So we'll see. Um, 
Another thing that you spotted from the Specialized Camp Ronin was uh, a new 3D printed saddle, which they seem to be heading uh, deeper and deeper into. Um, this is not a, well, from what we can tell anyway, this is not just like a subtle reskin of one of their existing 3D printed saddles, but it looks like a new model. Do you have any idea what it is? Um, yeah, it, it's definitely a new model, you know, having got up close to it there and had a look at it and having a Roman Evo mirror saddle uh, on one of my bikes here. Uh, it is definitely not one of those, and it's also definitely not one of the power mirror saddles. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's definitely a new one. It's, as I mentioned in the gallery, you know, sort of flicking through the specialized website and looking at their uh, saddles. They have obviously taken the Roman name and the power name when they're, you know, introducing this 3D uh, mirror technology. Uh, and they've they've used those saddle names and you know roughly speaking the the dimensions and shapes and all that, uh, and the only one left of the current range that they haven't done that with is the Phenom. So um, my go to, your go to, okay. Um, mm. I can't say I've ever sat on a Phenom. I it's it's originally it was originally a mountain bike saddle. Uh, so it's sort of uh, yeah. In the in in recent years that they started to not called a mountain bike saddle but it's uh yeah i think it was probably the biggest inspiration for the the power in terms of its shape like the power is basically a a phenon with the the nose cut off of it so um yeah it's a good one yeah uh what was i think most interesting for me is that it was uh fabio jacobson was one of the writers using this saddle jasper casper asgreen was the other writer but Jakobsen in particular was interesting for me because he was previously riding with the Roman Evo Mur, which is, you know, specialized other 3D printed uh, option. And so, you know, it's not like he's changing from a, uh, he was already on a Phenom that wasn't available with Mur and now they have started this. So he started using the 3D printed one. He has moved from another 3D printed option, which I thought was interesting. I mean, the reality is, um, and let's see, I think I, Specialized now has the Roman Evo and the Power. Um, are those, yeah, so those are the only two that they offer in 3D printing. Is that correct? Am I remembering correctly? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I mean, I've ridden both of those, and they do feel quite different. Um, so it's not entirely surprising that you know, that riders have a preference in the 3D printed models, just as they would in the regular ones. Um, but yeah, maybe it is a new phenom, uh, which you know, Dave, like you said, is, is has become. A super popular option on the road too, so it, it certainly would make sense that uh, that it could be a Phenom mirror. I mean, I suppose if Specialized wanted to resurrect an old name, they could bring back the Toupee or something. But I'm not really entirely sure why they would do that at this point. But yeah. but either way, this new saddle, like if you look at it, it's it seems to be to me anyway, like notably flatter from side to side and front to back than the other two options that are out there. So um yeah if you're if you're into specialized saddles and 3d printed ones in particular and want a flatter profile that might be the ticket for you yeah and i mean like again seeing the saddle asking specialized what what's this about uh getting very little response and then starting to ask questions that may or may not get a response it it seems like it is a phenome it seems like it's something that's going to be uh i i I took from the conversation that it was going to be announced very soon but i got no details on when it will be or will not be seems it seems i might be investing in a mirror saddle Mm. Mm. it's a Uh, but but david i don't think it's it's not a tool though so although i guess maybe you can attach a tool to the back of it would that Mm. count this i might have to not purchase a tool in exchange of getting this saddle that's that's how much i like the phenon saddle i think i've bought about 
seven or eight of them now. Whoa. Um, like I've been collecting them for seven years, I'd like to say, as when I first started using it. So it's, it is, has been the go-to saddle one. Uh, yeah, I use the power in between that, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty loyal to that saddle. Um, do you put those on test bikes in the commander? Do you test test bikes yes. with the provided saddle? No, I, um, I'll actually typically test the test, the initial original saddle first, and then I'll quickly swap because it doesn't feel right. And then I'll do the rest of the testing on with a familiar saddle. So I have a lot of spares for that purpose. So I don't have to take saddles off my own bikes. Hmm. Well, if yeah. I if I ever come across a, a spare phenom, Dave, I'll be sure to put it aside for you. Please, please do. <laughs> yes, yeah, um, I collect phenons like I do Allen keys, and uh, <laughs> yeah. You, you mentioned the two pay before, and I I don't think that that name will come back because my understanding with it was it was actually a, an inside joke amongst the the body geometry crew at Specialized. Is that it was just a. Uh, yeah, basically a, a bold saddle with a little padding on top. Um, so it doesn't really fit for what the, the mirror is. So, yeah, fair, um, fair. Okay. Yeah. Very fair. Um, all right. Well, uh, another new thing that you spotted, Roner, oh, we, we're pretty sure it's a new thing anyway that we also don't have any info about. Um, SRAM's current red group set um, still worked great, still widely used, um, but it seems like it's due for an update and uh we maybe got a little hint of that in a cassette right yeah i mean had you asked me at the start of this year i would have said we'll see a new sram red before the tour and then we've had so many other sram announcements so far this year i think i think we i think at at this point none of us were expecting a new sram red at the tour and you know lo and behold we didn't get one but what we what i did spot on on Jonas Finigo and on Wolf van Art's bike, and I couldn't find on anybody else's bike that I had time to check for, uh, is a new cassette. And I asked the folks at SRAM, what's this cassette? And I was just told it's 1036. And I was like, yes, <laughs> it's the ratio, but what is actually, what is the, <laughs> what is the cassette? Um, and I was told again, repeatedly, it's a 1036 uh, until eventually I got a no comment. Um, yeah. SRAM is very good at giving non-answers for things. <laughs> very, very good. Uh, I mean, like, it, it was clear that it, it wasn't, um, you know, it, it I was saying to Dave earlier, it's a little, it looks a bit like the new transmission cassettes or Eagle cassettes or whatever you want to, that, that mountain bike stuff that you guys like. Um, it's it's like one of those new cassettes. It's hollowed out. You can see from the rear that it's quite a bit more hollowed out than a typical SRAM red cassette. It doesn't have any sort of uh, decals or text on it to indicate what you know spec it is, but you would have to imagine in that 1036 ratio that it is a rogue cassette and given that it is on two of the biggest stars of one of the biggest teams in the Tour de France, including the defending champions, it's not some, you know, a lower spec cassette. It's a, it's a pretty high spec cassette, you would imagine. It looks pretty lightweight and is entirely different looking, at least from the rear looking at it, than the existing Schramberg cassettes. Yeah, because I was just about and to say the giveaway for us was just that it did have sort of a different graphic pattern on that aluminum backplate. Hmm. Yeah, uh, and that are they using that in a two by configuration? Uh, they were using that in a one by. One by, okay, mm. all right. So it's nothing. It's in that sense, it's not too different to explore. 
mm. uh, no, although, that, that you can currently use. Although the current 1036 is offered, I mean, it is primarily designed as a two-by offering. Um, right. It's like the SRAM Red Wide, uh, sort of. For Wide, yeah. Um, yeah. Which, in and of itself, I think it's pretty cool that we have a cassette that has that much range to begin with anyway. Uh, I haven't mm-hmm. I haven't done the calculation to see what the equivalent would be if you started out with an 11, but that's a it's a that's a lot of gear range in a 1036. Um mm. so again like you know the, those pro riders are using it in a one by but for two by um for like sort of just everyday riders that's that's a lot of that's a lot of range. Yeah. I should I should mention that while the that 36 tooth cog that aluminum cog looks a lot like aesthetic wise and the way it's milled out like the new transmission mountain bike stuff uh the key feature with transmission cassettes is actually that narrow wide tooth profile uh mm-hmm. that you see on on all of the the cogs except for except for the middle setup cog um and this cassette doesn't have that this mm-hmm. cassette's pretty standard in that regard so um that's not to say we won't ever see that narrow wide stuff come to the road but uh it's not here Mm. Uh, yeah, and just to go back to your one by or two by question, like Jonas Vinigo was riding today's stage in a two by setup, and at least from the photos that I was able to look up online, looks like he's running, you know, a, one of the existing SRAM Red cassettes there. And as for the days that I seen them with this new cassette, uh, Jonas was on a fifty tooth, White was on a fifty two tooth, both on both on one by. Um, so yeah, it's I think it's it it. You know, it certainly looks like a lighter weight option with the, you know, a, a, a th- the part that looks to me like the new Eagle sets is the hollowed out nature of that backing plate. And, you know, that presumably is some sort of weight saving uh, measure. Well, uh, like you said, Ronan, we have seen updates on basically every other SRAM road group set at this point. So, yeah, Apex, Rival and Force. Um, so, yeah, Red is next, presumably. Yeah, I think. We should probably explain why we're asking if this is uh, the first indication of a new red group set. It's because it does look so aesthetically different to the existing. Um, you know, it, it is a big detour there. Yeah, it's also like, yeah, for anyone that hasn't been following, it's red is now the oldest group set in the lineup. It's force has all the best features of red, basically. And uh, like force was updated earlier this year to have all the lighter and, and better improvements of, of red. But what took things further with the improved lever ergonomics and so in a sense red's kind of just this uh sitting dead duck in a way because a lot of people building new bikes are, are opting for force rather than tram's top end group set which is a bit more dated and a bit more clunky feeling is this the start of trickle up technology <laughs> uh i i think it's trickle down making room for something wholly new mm. yeah interesting mm. well we can You'd speculate away on that one. Um, well, so again, yet another product that we'll have to wait for some more official information on. Um, continue shall, on. I, shall I blast through the other few new things that I've seen? Because yes, I think, I think we could be here all day, couldn't we? We could be. We could. Well, there, only, there were only like a couple of other things on my list, but please, by all <laughs> means, have at it. Well, I mean, I can also blast through them because, yeah, the just as no information on these things, but there is uh, at least Jacobo Guarnieri was wearing what looks like a new pair of Q36.5 road shoes. Uh, it did say unique on the sole, and looking from the side, the carbon sole did look the same as the unique shoes that Q36.5 currently offer, but the upper was entirely different. Uh, it looked like a sort of a knit construction, 
presumably more breathable, maybe lighter, not sure, but uh, definitely a new pair of shoes there that is not on the Q36.5 website. Uh, Ecoy, have you used those? Both uh, of us, both of us actually. What's that? Both what of us, have, yeah. Them? Both of us have used oh, them. Okay. Yeah, and right. and I and I'm pretty. If I remember correctly, Rodan, we both had the same opinion of them for the most part. That the the shoe itself seemed really good, and the really really squishy, SciTech uh, developed insole was a little too weird. Um, that yeah, and, and that insole has been updated or changed since, and. There's like a silver edition of those Q36.5 unique shoes that comes with an entirely different insole, if I've got that the right way around. It's either the colored version or the silver version, but one of them comes with uh, a, a new, much um, a much more you know uh, typical insole that you might find in uh, in, 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 in other shoes. Um, but yeah, like with now with my own insoles, I they're not my go-to shoes. But I would use them regularly enough, just to bend. If I'm if I'm running my Asioma pedals, I've still got Lukio cleats on those Q36.5, so I'll, I'll throw them on. And every time you put them on, you get that same sensation of just how comfortable they are to wear with before you get on the bike. Um, they they're just not they don't give as much support, I find, as as you really want in a, in a pair of shoes. Um, but yeah, you know, everybody's feet is different, so that was. That was just that was just my experience. The other new thing that I've seen from French brand Ecoy is a new aero helmet, um, and I I would say that sort of I, th- I think there is some details that have come out on this helmet since I haven't had a chance to read up on the. But at the time that I seen it, it was the first that I'd seen it. All the Ecoy teams in the race, and I think there's about three or four teams in the race this year using the, their helmets. Were were running this new aero helmet, and it's it sort of struck me as a blend of original arrow like way back 10 15 years ago and modern arrow and that the front half was just like a closed off helmet with three vents the type of arrow helmet you might have found 10 years ago when we when we first started seeing these things and then the back is very very modern looking with the sort of downwash effect uh flow to the to the rear of it very much like the new trek ballista helmet if i remember the name right uh and you've got this huge big sort of port at the back sort of like a I think Matt called it a, a diffuser or exhaust port or something like that. And this one does look very, actually looks more like, like that. So I find that an interesting looking helmet. I dare say the riders might find it quite warm on a, on a day like today in the high mountains and haven't had a check today. haven't had a chance to check today, which helmet the Ikoi riders were wearing. Um, and then lastly on the list of new things that I've seen uh, was new Campagnolo Bora Ultra WTO 45 uh, wheel set. Uh, it looks like the only difference there is actually they've just increased the both, well, I'm presuming internally, but they've definitely increased the external width of of that rim. And that's, you know, when did we first see those wheels? Like 2018, uh, when most people were using a, a while back. And I, I have a set since 2019 uh, of the 60 mil deep uh, WTOs. So, I'm pretty sure they were around for a while before that. And, you know, most riders' tire choices in, in terms of width have increased quite a bit since then. So it would probably make sense that we're seeing a new wider version of that wheel. But otherwise, looks identical. They've retained the G3 spoke pattern. Um, decals are identical. I was sort of alerted to this when I tried to measure the tire width and I was almost banished from Europe by the AG2R staff member who spotted me 
with the vernier calipers um and then that alerted me to the i was like well if this guy's reacting like this have they got something to hide uh, and then there was like a red dot on the hub little sticker that they put on it was only on all, i think all the riders were using the 45 mil rims but it was only on two of the riders wheels and i was like what's different there and then looking a bit closer it does seem like a a wider rim on those new wheels okay so clearly what we need to supply a ronin with are some smaller calipers yes <laughs> <laughs> Cam- some camouflage. transparent ones yeah transparent or if, camouflage print or something like that something a little less conspicuous. if only we knew someone who could recommend a set of calipers all right dave yeah dave start start um, start looking I'm going to start looking into accurate laser base tools so you can do it from a distance. Perfect. Mm, perfect. Get Q yeah. on, the, on the job. Fantastic. Well, I, I think that's all we have for tour-related tech. Is that right? I mean, it's a pretty good list. Uh, the one other thing we do wanted to mention there was just the integrated Shimano satellite oh, shifters yeah. that's right. on that's right. um, Uno X teams. The, they're sponsored by Dare, a Norwegian brand of bikes, uh, who have their own integrated handlebar and stem. And built into that, they have these sort of, uh, it's it's on the tops, and that's I think uh, at least I call that the climber climbing shifters. Um, so it's, it's there used to be climber shifters way back in the day, and sprint shifters. Now they're just all the same, and you put them wherever you want. Um, but the Uno X uh, team bars have them integrated into the tops, which was a pretty neat solution. I thought it's a really clean solution for sure and honestly it's one that i'm surprised that we haven't seen more of considering how much you know how much companies like to incorporate everything or like build everything into carbon structures now um yeah i'm a little surprised that we haven't seen more of that although i guess it would also kind of preclude a rider's ability to move those buttons where exactly hmm. they want them well we we have kind of seen it before in that pro offer some sort of integration of the satellite shifters if i remember correctly uh, that one's just off the top of my head, but definitely the Lapierre bikes that uh, Groupama FTGA are riding also have like a, an option for an integrated climbing shifter there. Uh, at least as far as I spotted, none of the FTGA riders are actually using those, um, or they're either not using it, or whatever way Lapierre have integrated, you, you don't actually see the, the Shimano uh, trigger. You, you, they maybe have built in their own button or something. I'm, I'm not sure, but there's definitely climber shifters built into the tops of the lapier bars also gotcha um i i have a bike here for test uh a polygon uh which uses a handlebar from a company called black tech uh with of course being cycling there's there's no vowels in that uh and uh it seems like a very similar bar and this handlebar i have here has like little rubber port covers over exactly where uh yeah this handlebar that you're talking about has its sprint shifters placed um so i'm thinking potentially uh that handlebar you're looking at is just rebranded of something else that's readily available in the market and that it's yeah it's a relatively common feature already i mean it's no well one's be. thought to use those ports for that it'd be slick it'd be a great use for those ports especially if they're not being used otherwise so yeah, because I, I assume that those ports were there for um, mechanical shift housing as an exit point uh, in case you needed to run, yeah, mechanical shifting through this integrated bar. But right, or just external could, brake hose for a bike that doesn't have fully internal riding. Yeah, yeah. Um, which either way would be a hideous thing to do to have the the cables exit midway through the 
the back of the bar. But it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It makes it. It looks to me there's a lot of uh, similarity between these these two bars, and uh, so yeah, I well, should uh, I should look into that. Wouldn't be the first time that something has been rebranded. I dare say. Ha ha! See mm-hmm. what I did there. Ha 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 ha! All right. Well, let's let's uh, let's wrap up the tour tech here. Um, as I think we've gone through quite enough of all that, Ron, I have to say you were quite, as I mentioned earlier in the show, you you were quite productive considering how little time you actually spent on the ground over there. So well done, well done. Couple, at least one more gallery to come, also probably two, um, and a bit of a deep dive. So um, I mean, if if I can if I can recover from the deep fatigue, I will get those uh, typed up starting tomorrow, but not making any promises. <laughs> That that's fair. I think that would be perfectly okay. I think you earned a little bit of time off here, but not too much time. Chop mm. chop. You got some mm. stuff to do here, Ronan. Uh, anyway, uh, moving on from non-tour tech news, uh, kind of a big one. I guess these are kind of more business related. Uh, Pinarello was recently sold, um, so it was purchased last in what was it, twenty eighteen? I think it was. Um, all right. No, I guess it was 2016. It was basically owned by LVMH, uh, which is basically the holding company for Louis Vuitton. Um, and back then, it, it was it was purchased for about 90 million euros. And uh, now, uh, Pinarello has been sold for, I believe, an undisclosed amount to mm-hmm. a private family office, uh, which as uh, Joan Lindsay, uh, also a member of our staff on Escape Collective, he uh, so astutely pointed out is sort of just a, a sort of a code word, so to speak, for basically just like a really rich, rich individual person or family, uh, someone with a lot of money. Um, so again, we don't really have... Uh, uh, like every abs- Panarello owner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't have an absolute confirmation on the transaction amount, but it has been reported in the Financial Times that it was uh, 250 million euros. So LVMH certainly made a pretty penny on this one. Um, yeah. And uh, Fausto Pinarello, uh, this is unofficial information, still has retained, uh, I believe we've heard 19% of the company. So uh, he still owns a fair chunk of that. Um, and the rest of it comes from a South African billionaire, Ivan Glassenberg, supposedly. So uh, that's rumored, right? That that's is rumored. Not- it's not conf- like none of those figures are confirmed. I should be very, very clear or on that. Or that, that individual is linked. correct. Correct. We do. Yeah. We do have pretty good word that they were in negotiations, and they seem to be the ones who were most likely to have inked the deal. But that again is not one hundred percent confirmed. But either way, the interesting part here is that Pinarello has been sold. Um, so we don't have any information at this point, um, as is often the case when a company is sold. Um, you know, they haven't even really put out as much of a statement saying what the plans are for now. Um, if they did, I'm sure it would say something like, oh, everything's going to stay the same. It's going to be fine, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but we all know that's not going to happen. So the question is, uh, what happens from here? Um, Pinarello clearly is primarily interested in a very, very up, you know, higher end market. Um, if, if for no reason other than the fact that it used to be owned by Louis Vuitton, it seemed pretty clear that they were positioning it as a luxury brand. Um, this Pinarello stay where it is? Do they move even further upscale somehow? Do they kind of move mass market? What do we think might happen here? Because I don't know. If I were sinking 200, 200 million euros into a brand, I'd be looking for some sort of return on that investment, wouldn't I? 
I am far from an expert in this, but I think they continue on a similar track to what they're on. Uh, mm. the, the mean, luxury, they, seem, they seem to be doing well. Yeah, and the luxury goods market is one market that is not affected by the sort of financial cost of living crisis that many people are uh, unfortunately living through at the moment. On top of that, you've got Fausto Pinarello retaining a, a large percentage stake in, in the company here. And you know we have heard how involved he is in the day-to-day running of that business, how involved he is in even everything down to, you know, designing new frames and, you know, right right down to, you know, the engineers and that will say, here's the frame we've come up with, present it to him, and he will sign off. And it's so long as it gets an extra curve here or an extra curve there. Um and you know that you that 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 that's not actually I'm not I, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean he is you know, uh, intent on retaining the Panarello signature image. Um, and I, I would imagine he will continue to do so if he still has a 19% stake. So he, I would say similar track. He, I guess he does kind of, he does sort of project the image of a company owner or principal who is kind of one of the first into the building and one of the last out of the building. Mm. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. They're a brand that actually understands branding. is is probably my my takeaway of of Pinarello. Is that uh, like BMC used to always claim that if you were in a room full of hundreds of bikes with and the lights were turned off, that you could find the BMC. Uh, and I think Pinarello certainly um, in that same vein, where you know it's a Pinarello, and you know, yes, from an engineering point of view, maybe some of those curves don't necessarily only equal performance, but. Uh, it is it is a brand that sticks out, and I think the company will probably continue on whatever trajectory is required to ensure that that brand remains individual. And yeah, remains its you know re- separates itself. Very very consistent and distinctive design language for sure. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, but I mean they've recently expanded into mountain bikes. So I mean there's there is the precedent at the moment for them to continually expand beyond selling dogmas. So it's, uh, yeah, I think, I think we'll probably see them grow as a, as a brand to, to encompass more bikes. I mean, when you have companies like, you know, Lamborghini and Ferrari and Aston Martin making SUVs, it's not mm-hmm. a big stretch to see a company like Pinarello moving into the mountain Chicago bike space. bikes. <laughs> oh okay we were thinking different things <laughs> i don't know about the cargo bike thing but uh but yeah i mean some some sort of expansion is not out of the question i would think um but yeah we'll we'll, we'll find out in the years the, to come the pinarello camel with with <laughs> multiple humps uh that i'm pretty sure we're not gonna see that would be my guess okay. dave that would be my guess right. um so another piece of business news, Dave. This is one that you came up with. Uh, what is going on with Tune? Tune, the the German company, best known for its uh, weight weenie components. Uh, they do all sorts of things. I mean, they're probably best known for like their quick releases and and for their hubs and uh, and their and their and brilliant print catalogs. Yes, yes, they do. They do a, a good photograph here and there. Uh, they are from the Black Forest of Germany, and they have been acquired by the same parent company that uh, owns Lightweight. So it's a sort of a, a composite manufacturing specialist company uh, based in Friedrichshafen, which is the 
the home of the original home of uh, Eurobike or the home of Eurobike for many years. And uh, yeah, it's they've acquired them. So I mean, it's you've now got lightweight and tune in the same business, uh, which is kind of intriguing because you can imagine that lightweight will soon enough perhaps move away from using DT Swiss internals in their hubs and perhaps start using something from tune and become even lighter. Synergies, Dave. Synergies. Mm. Um, Mm. What is kind of neat about this acquisition is that it actually does kind of seem to make a lot of sense because there's not a lot of overlap between the product lines between those two companies. I mean, Lightweight is still primarily just a high-end wheel company, right? Um, Whereas Tune, uh, as you mentioned, Dave, they obviously do hubs and a whole bunch of hubs, I should say. Um, But they do like stems and handlebars and seat posts and bottom brackets and a bunch of accessories. And like they have all sorts of stuff. So fiber coffee cups. Carbon fiber coffee cups. They they've got <laughs> they've got a they've got a surprisingly diverse product blend there. Um, but uh, also yeah. usually focused on low weight. Yes, yes. So yeah, I mean, like again, this like uh, company acquisitions sometimes don't really seem to make a whole lot of sense. But this is one that actually I could see I could see working. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it definitely makes sense. So, um, and yeah, I'm I'm keen to see it because Tune historically has has done some really cool product, and to have some what you'd assume is further investment in them could uh, could result in in some really neat stuff, especially given the the composites ownership now. So, I'd imagined you know perhaps we'll see more yeah ca- carbon usage, and you know Tune's traditionally been a lot of CNC machining, but. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. And who knows? Maybe we'll even see a bit of anodized aluminum color in lightweight products, which would be a very mm. big departure from the norm. Mm. Mm. All right. Well, let's uh, let's wrap up the news part of this show today. Um, oh, oh, can wait. I add one more? Oh, Dave's got one more. What you got, Dave? Uh, Garbrook. They, oh, uh, yes. Uh-huh. The, the machining, aluminum machining specialists, I guess. They're best known for their chain rings and... Uh, yeah, they've not so long ago expanded into crank sets and they've just released a road and gravel crank set. So what I'm quite ex- excited about this is, uh, yeah, it's, it's not terribly expensive. It's 420 us dollars for the crank set. Uh, and it's basically, if you've ever seen the Cannondale SISL crank, which is like a two pieces machined, hollowed machined aluminum, uh, that are then bonded together, basically that. So they've recreated that, which is something FSA also does. Uh, but yeah, it's I like it. It looks nice. It's not terribly expensive. It's pretty light. Uh, and it comes in a range of pretty colors. And you can mix and match uh, like the lock ring, the, the self-extracting lock ring color. You can mix and match the crank arm color. You can mix and match the chain rings, which are also available in certain colors. So I think it's quite a an affordable way to add some serious bling uh to relatively affordable bike you use relatively affordable i mean 420 us is it's not small money but i mean it's you compare it against a lot of other high-end boutique cranks which are known to add a an aesthetic value to a bike and it seems quite cheap i i I don't want to disappoint you here dave but i've got a little bit of bad news about this oh no uh q factor 152 152 dear god Mm. 
Yeah. Although I think that's the way. Okay, so it's wide for gravel, but I think it's uh, uh, sorry, it's wide for road. But I yes. think on gravel bikes, that's it's that's not, kind of the not way too uncommon. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because I I also have a set of King Creek E wings titanium crank arms, and those also have a a notably wide Q factor, like one fifty seven. I think might be yeah. so like a yeah. a good a good 10, 15 millimeters above a, a typical narrow road crank set. Um, yeah. it, is and the no, way, it is noticeable. Yeah. Is it a deal breaker? Eh, hasn't been for me, but something to mm. note, any, uh, something to note and, nonetheless. And most, most gravel bikes are adopting that wider, that wider system that SRAM introduced, introduced a few years ago. We saw it on that, the Lauf Siegler first, and yep. it, seems yep. to become, it seems to be becoming the new norm, especially as we're seeing bikes adopt uh, UDH. I have been using that Mike. So, so after I said Mishe the last time, someone corrected me and I believe you said Mi- Mish. I believe you Mish. said Mish is what you said. Well, whatever I said, I think most people understood that I was talking about um, Mike. <laughs> and had I said Mike, maybe most people wouldn't have understood that. But anyway, those cranks, yeah. uh, Pistarde Airs, one of the things I like most about them is 138 mil Q factor. It's, yeah, I, I, I really like It's like, it's noticeably nicer for me anyway isn't isn't that quite slow given it hits the chainstays every year evolution <laughs> no only only for the initial few rotations and then once you've eaten away most of the chainstay you're you're fine uh, okay <laughs> right and, and, and then you get a nice little whistle to let people know that you're coming yeah. <laughs> no it does it does restrict the the chain ring size but like i mean it restricted it to a 156 or to a 56 instead of a 60 uh well, Dave, your mentioning of Garbarek actually is a, is a perfect lead-in for uh, our On Your Mind segment because uh, I've actually had a couple of things on my mind. So maybe we can, maybe I think we've got time to, to, to discuss some yeah, pretty decent list that we've got here. Um, one of the things that I've noticed, particularly in the last couple of years of handmade bike shows and just kind of like going to trade shows in general, is um, we really have seen a return in CNC machining as a widely used form of manufacturing. So, I mean, we all know the 3D printing has you know, kind of been on the upswing, but 3D printing is expensive. Um, CNC machining, however, is a lot more accessible, and we're seeing an awful lot of it. Um, is this a good thing, or is it just kind of a thing? Because there were reasons why it went away in the 90s. What were those reasons? I mean, essentially what you're looking at is um, if you kind of think of a block of aluminum as like a piece of wood. I mean, people think of aluminum as this very homogeneous material, but ultimately it's made up of uh, sort of like individual little crystals. You can kind of call them grains. And when you have them in a forging or billet or something like that, all those little things are aligned. And when you machine away material, you're sort of just kind of cutting through all the little grains and cutting through that 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 structure. And you're at, at least on like kind of a microscopic level, you're you're kind of compromising in some sense the the strength of the material. Whereas with forging, you're sort of just squishing everything together. So those those grains are still intact. They're just sort of like kind of like reformed. Um, and uh, that that's that was one of the big reasons why. Shimano, the original first generation Shimano XTR kind of put a lot of those CNC machining companies out of business back in the 90s, along with, along with the fact that it just worked better. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, we're seeing an awful lot of CNC machining now. So we have, uh, Dave, like you said, that, that Garbara company. Um, I, I was looking at Three this. Three dev. Yeah, yeah. Uh, five dev. 
five dev. Oh, five dev. Yeah, that um, makes more sense. And then, uh, like Industry Nine has a, you know has their own stem, and I was looking at this German company Acto Five the other day at at Eurobike. Um, but there's an awful lot of it out there, and I think it's awfully cool that we have all this additional choice and there's all this extra creativity going on right now. And it, it does seem like the reliability is better, thankfully. Like, cause it seems like before a lot of these companies were just starting from like cast billets or something back in the day. But it's, the impression that I'm getting now is a lot of these companies are now starting with at least sort of like near net forgings, which is better. Um, but yeah, either way, I mean, just it, it's, it's something that I've noticed for sure. There's an awful lot of CNC machine stuff out there. Yeah, I think like the technology is obviously more accessible than before. I think the technology's also come a long way. Uh like the the capabilities of CNC machining is pretty sophisticated these days with the the five axis machines that are, are now pretty readily available. So you can actually machine components far more efficiently than you ever could and and more intricately. Uh but I also think there's just it's low risk manufacturing, right? Like it's small batch manufacturing. So you can you can really produce almost on demand uh and you know not have to have big investments in uh yeah forgings and and more traditional mass manufacturing methods you can really just produce what you need and hit go again when you need more and uh and change the design when something starts to break uh and yeah i think it's uh, i think that's probably quite uh, attractive for a lot of these smaller businesses that have you know perhaps come up through other industries or or just want to yeah get into selling products without huge investment um so yeah i think it's that and obviously 3d printing comes comes into it at a a similar angle but that technology is just vastly more expensive still yeah i guess i have a uh I have a test frame that is coming in sometime in the next few weeks, I think, from a, Cana- a new Canadian brand called Framework. I think I mentioned them on the podcast before. Um, but it's it's in-house filament wild carbon tubing. Uh, and then it's all CNC machined aluminum lugs, all custom done. Uh, he's got a, a pretty cool parametric model going for all that stuff for his frame designs. Um, but yeah, it, that that's all CNC machined as far as the, the joints are concerned. And... I, it is the flexibility of the machining and the design is, is without a doubt the most appealing part of that manufacturing method. Because if you were to do all that with traditional mitering and welding or, you know, forging, that sort of thing, like you said, Dave, it'd be an awful lot of tooling or it'd be a lot more limited in terms of what you can offer. Um, but yeah, I mean, as, as someone who came into cycling, kind of more in the, I guess, late eighties, early nineties sort of thing, then, this this is all a lot of the stuff is kind of tugging at the heartstrings here because it's 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 definitely an aesthetic that I'm very well familiar with. Yeah, uh, I think uh, the return of Anno is uh, is probably in a very similar vein where we've uh, we've kind of hit the repeat button on having everything available in every color. Uh, I personally don't think it's all that sustainable as a as an industry. I think the the industry does this where they expand into offering every product in eight different colors and then realizes that they don't necessarily sell as much as a result of it and that distributors can't afford to carry uh, each chain ring size in eight different variants because you end up with hundreds of different chain rings. Uh, and yeah, so I, I suspect we're probably uh, in a temporary phase of excitement for anodized colors again and we'll probably see it return back to silver and black at some point 
or at least companies seem to be smarter about it um, because it seems like they're doing them in smaller batches or they're kind of doing them a little bit more on demand in terms of the anodizing. Yeah. And then yeah. like that company that you mentioned earlier, uh, Dave Garbarek, yeah, they do offer cassettes, for example, in custom, not custom, but in a variety of anodized colors, but, um, but it's just for the backing plate. So it's not like you have to, it's not like they have to have the entire thing anodized in a particular color so they can kind of mix and match a little bit like you know keep a bunch of different colors of back plates on hand and then just stick them together depending on what people want um so it does seem like people are being smarter about it, which is good yeah it also helps that you know the the selling method has completely changed a lot of these uh cnc machined and anodized companies are doing sort of consumer direct sales so they can really control that sales channel so Perhaps that that'll help keep the purple anno alive for longer than I think it will be. <laughs> I do like purple anno, Dave. I do like it. Uh, all right, who else has got something on their mind today? I have a very quick one. Uh, I mean, this this segment was originated from something on your mind, uh, but over the heads of your family. And yeah, I I came home. I think it was from the tour and uh, pulled a new test bike that had arrived out of the box. And immediately wanted to go in and tell someone that this road bike that had arrived at my house has UDH on it. But I mean, that was over the heads of everybody in my house. So uh, I'm telling <laughs> you guys now. <laughs> I mean, we've mentioned this a couple times on previous episodes of the podcast. We were, I guess, a while ago, we were speculating if UDH, the SRAM's universal derailleur hanger format, would become more of a thing for drop bar bikes. And uh, basically, in the last few I guess even just the last few weeks, it's become very clear that it's not only going to become a thing, but it already is a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, pretty shocking how quickly it's uh, it's being implemented. Well, I, I think it's just more that it's probably something that had been in the works for quite a while, and now is when all those bikes are finally ready. Um, I think it's pretty pretty clear. But the big motivator, obviously, has been SRAM's transmission setup, and at least for gravel bikes, it allows for people to run the new transmission rear derailleur. Uh, on their mullet setups. But what is intriguing is seeing UDH being used more widely on road bikes that will never see one of those Eagle transmission route derailers. So yeah, um, this this is something I speculated when SRAM released their transmission, uh, which takes the place of that UDH derailleur and sort of sandwiches around the dropout, uh, which is if or when we see it on road bikes, then that is writing on the wall for SRAM doing... Uh, the T-type derailleur, which sandwiches the dropout uh, as a road version, uh, which would be stronger. It potentially more tucked underneath the bike, so it could potentially be more aerodynamic. Uh, I, the strength for me is is enough reason to do it because I could imagine, um, you know, someone in the world tour actually crashing drive side down on the bike and just jumping back up and getting going again without uh, without a bent derailleur, uh, which would be a huge difference from what happens currently. Um, yeah, but uh, it seems like the yeah that speculation is is now becoming true. Dare I say? And just to go back to that Ridley that we mentioned earlier, also one of the things I forgot to mention was that it also has UDH on it. And one of the things that we spotted uh, in that gallery of mine from the tour was just how wide the uh, seat stays in that have to flare out, uh, presumably yeah. to accommodate UDH. Yeah, I, I, I saw know. you mention that in the caption and actually looking at how a lot of the mountain bikes do UDH. Now, I don't think that flare has anything to do 
and it, I don't think that flare has anything to do with the rear derailleur because you actually don't need any room up on top of the dropout for the derailleur. Um, my guess is that's probably a play towards some sort of compliance feature. That's my guess anyway. Um, but the big thing on the road that I've talked to you, uh, the, the concern that I that people seem to have from a road frame designer point of view, particularly on metal frames, is just how wide those dropouts or how thick yeah. those dropouts need to be according to the SRAM spec. Yeah. Um, yeah, Darren Bolm's mentioned that before. Yeah, it's not a huge yeah. deal for companies that deal primarily in carbon because uh, we've already seen a whole bunch of frames that seem to do that pretty elegantly. Um, like Ronan, you mentioned that on that on that Ridley. Um, Felt is about to drop a couple of new bikes that have UDH. Um, I have a, a, a Rita Esprit test bike here that I'm wrapping up that has UDH on it as well. And those are all done pretty pretty neatly. Like it 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 really doesn't look. Uh, kind of ungainly or bulky or anything like that, but I could see how it would look a little bit disproportionate on, uh, definitely on a steel bike, um, but probably also on a titanium bike as well. So the big question I have is: SRAM announced the the universal derailleur hanger and the mountain bike as like this kind of savior to having so many different derailleur hanger types, and then it took about three years of implementation of that, and we saw pretty widespread adoption from the industry in that time, like. Three years was enough for just about every brand to release a a UDH bike. Um, a couple missed out, but they'll probably get there in the next iteration. Uh, and then we saw them introduce their drivetrain to make use of that mount. We'd, we were just talking previously about new SRAM Red coming at some point. Like it's you know it's due for an update at this point. Uh, do we think it'll happen? Do we think it'll use that UDH this iteration? Because my gut feel is it won't. I don't think it will just because there hasn't been the, the adoption rate on the road has definitely not been as swift as it has been on the mountain bike side. Um, and, and obviously that is a prerequisite to being able to implement something like that, a a derailleur like that, like the T type derailleur that you were talking about, Dave. Mm -hmm. Um, so with so relatively few brands showing road bikes that have UDH on there, um, I, I'd say we're probably looking at one more generation. And honestly, yeah. I, my my gut feeling is that SRAM was probably hoping that road brands would adopt it a little bit quicker. And I would bet, I would bet almost anything that there was that there was parallel development for whatever this new SRAM red generation is going to be. I bet there was parallel development of both a T-type and standard rear derailleur. Or maybe there will be both on this one anyway. We'll see. Um, yeah. But yeah, as of right now, I feel like there's not enough. The, the, the adoption of UDH on the road is not widespread enough for SRAM to be able to get away, for them to pull off having exclusively a T-type red rear derailleur for this next generation. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Would be mm. awful, it would be awfully interesting, though. Because like you were mm. like you were saying, Dave, with with you know being able to crash and not have a hanger bent and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, it really wasn't that long ago when we had companies um, like even Trek was making custom frames for their pro riders and teams that had non replaceable rear derailleur hangers, so that they would they would be less prone to bending in a crash. And then you had companies yeah. like you know Wheels Manufacturing was making titanium derailleur hangers for Cervelo because those were less prone to bending, stuff like that. So we, you know, we've seen efforts throughout the years of companies trying to make those replaceable derailleur hangers less replaceable. And and the 
the sort of funny thing is that with Shimano having moved the the crash mode button to the rear derailleur with the latest DA2, we're actually being forced down the road of SRAM's T-type <laughs> derailleur. Yeah. Uh, uh, hmm. yeah, so. yeah, and I guess that's, oh, no. that's another thing we haven't mentioned either is there, you know, all these people, there, there's some speculation out there about how how the adoption of UDH will sort of be a big problem for Shimano. And I don't think it will be because UDH still has an accommodation for a regular derailleur hanger. Um, I mean, that that's what it was presumably designed to be in the first place anyway. Again, we've kind of discussed the whole Trojan horse thing. Um, but it's really just another format for bike brands to figure out, not Shimano necessarily. Yeah, I've also, I was trying to look into whether other brands are allowed to use the mount uh for like to create their own t-type derailleur style uh shram wasn't really willing to make any comment on that but at the same time they didn't say they couldn't so i mean it's it's all possible that shimano will come up with some variation of its own version that's backwards compatible with every frame that has adopted the standard uh, and that we see various other types of direct mount solutions. Uh, you know, Shimano certainly played with direct mount derailers over the years, and the current generation of Shimano stuff uses its own kind of iteration of a direct mount. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a it's a very interesting space, and I think we will see frame design change as a result of it, uh, especially given just how much that derailleur reinforces the the whole dropout system uh, yeah. and yeah. how and how much it can serve as a especially on a road bike you know if you were to lay down the bike that derailleur would serve as a protectant to the rear end of the frame so it's for me i, I think that's a, a very exciting development for road bike design yep agreed for sure uh dave you got anything on your mind this week no not really Okay. I'm, uh, I'm trying to get uh i mean obviously but uh that would be kind of sad if not but uh just been sleeping um i'm <laughs> uh, just trying to get some reviews done so can't say when it'll come out but um very focused on uh classified hub system mm. at the moment i'm mm. trying to wrap that okay. up after months gotcha. of testing okay so, well looking yeah. forward to that one for sure well okay if you don't have anything on your mind this week that you want to discuss in this segment i'm going to go ahead and drop my second one uh and that it that would be um particularly after speaking to the people at Bosch and roaming the halls at Eurobike just in the last few weeks, uh, it really does seem to me that most, at least a lot, if not most, of the major new developments in mountain bike stuff seems to be geared more toward e-bikes instead of human-powered, not well, non-powered bikes. Um, and like a couple, a few notable things would be you know, like SRAM transmission, for example, an awful lot of tires, uh, you know, the Bosch ABS system that that's basically requires that you have a battery on your bike. Um, I mean, all these are all big developments, I feel like, and they all have e-bikes in mind. I mean, SRAM is not, I should say, SRAM is not, uh, they're not super uh, kind of overt about how transmission was designed for e-bikes, but just given how it shifts, it seems pretty clear to me that it was designed for with e-bikes in mind primarily. Yeah, absolutely. Like the way it's speed limited to only shift one cog at a time was definitely designed with uh, the idea of immense power being put through the drivetrain with each shift. Uh, and I think I'd, I'd heard something similar suggested to me with Shimano that 
uh, in future, like all mountain bike products were being built with e-bikes in mind. And especially like if we, if we were to see new DI2, which we've now seen it released for, for mountain, uh, for e-bikes, but not for analog mountain bikes. Um, but yeah, any next iteration of DI2 would be basically e-bike first. Uh, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing when you're talking about something like a drivetrain because the the result is is a is a drivetrain that is superior under power that is also probably reinforced to handle the weight of an e-bike landing on it uh i think generally speaking everyone's bikes benefit from this kind of design focus around being more robust yeah, I mean the the increase in robustness and just being designed to handle that additional drive torque in general, I think is is a good thing. Um, mm. I am just a little hesitant and a little worried, I guess, so to speak, that um, kind of a, of what we might be giving up in return for that robustness. Um, mm. And I know Dave, you and I seem to have differing opinions on on the, the transmission stuff in particular. Because it seems we do. Yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoy having the ability to shift up or down a whole bunch of gears in, in one fell swoop. Um, yeah. And I don't particularly love how, you, how, as you said, transmission is speed limited, which again, for e-bikes is fantastic because it does prevent things like busted chains and breaking teeth off of cassettes and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. But... If you are already accustomed to, or if you if 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 you're an experienced rider who who kind of understands kind of like some of the nuances in terms of shifting and shifting under power and that sort of thing, um, it's kind of a bummer that you cannot that you that you can't shift a whole bunch of gears in one swoop anymore because I mean you you do lose something in that. Yeah, I there are times where I miss having that with with new transmission, like where you're kind of having to wait for the derailleur to catch up. Uh, but at the same time, I've, I've learned to not shift with any skill. It's kind of, (laughs) it's kind of made me relearn how to shift. Like I was always pretty proud with how I could sprint and not break a chain and, and all that. Like I was, you know, I, I, I felt like I was a very experienced user of derailers in a sense. Like I, I I knew how to time a shift. Uh, and that was something that I didn't really love about electronic shifting is that it kind of removed that that tactile feeling of being able to time the shift. You didn't really know when to back off the power versus when the shift would enact. Uh, But with transmission, I've kind of just become accustomed to just not backing off the power and pushing the button and just hearing it pop into place. Um, And at first I was doing it, trying to break it. And now I'm doing it just because I can. (laughs) Uh, And it's, it actually has changed kind of the way I'll ride because now I find myself doing shifts where I, wouldn't have dared do before like mid-technical kind of climb i'll just hit the button and just wait for the shift you know just keep the power down and wait for the shift to happen uh and that's that's how an e-bike's ridden and and it's kind of influenced how i ride now which is uh for me it's it's quite interesting um and even going back to like uh like 12 speed shimano mechanicals very good in that regard shifting under power but it's still I find myself kind of wincing a little bit when I use that technique of just full power maneuvers while mid-gear shifting with even that system. It just doesn't seem to like it as much. Um, and in, in that sense, I'm, I'm pretty fond of transmission. Um, but I, I do understand that uh, 
it's yeah why why you want multiple gear shifts um but even looking outside of transmission i mean that's just one example um it, it does still seem like pretty much all of the new e- uh, i shouldn't say all but pretty much all of the the real exciting technological development for mountain bike stuff a lot of it does seem to be kind of focused or have e-bikes in mind because you know certainly a lot of them are powered uh, a lot of them require power um you know one thing that i saw at your bike in terms of like gearbox development um a lot of those were coupled with e-assist motors because those do help kind of overcome the extra drag of a, of a gearbox um i just find it interesting because it we Having seen numbers, not just from Bosch, but just sort of a bunch of other companies in general, we've already known that particularly in Europe, um, e-mountain bikes already outsell analog mountain bikes. Um, that happened quite a while ago, I think. Um, it hasn't happened yet in the U.S., but it seems like that is probably an inevitability as well. Um, it just makes me wonder, at what point does that pendulum swing all the way in that direction and the predominant amount of development work for mountain bike technology does be, you know, it, it does end up focused very overtly on e-bikes instead of analog bikes. It just seems like it's coming. I think we're already there. And I think if you look at a lot of the European uh, brands, there's there's a few brands like Rottweil, for example, that are basically just e-bike brands now. Uh, And I think it's, yeah, I think we're already there in terms of the biggest manufacturers designing for e-bikes. I think think we were there two or three years ago already. I think, yeah, I think all drivetrains on the market today are, e-bike optimized um and then there's the exception where you've got again tram transmission xxsl is not for e-bike use they specifically say do not use this on an e-bike and i my take of that is that they've basically designed the drivetrain for e-bike use and then they've said okay now how do we make it lighter for cross country and we're willing to sacrifice absolute strength and robustness and you know we'll basically reuse the technology but just change a few materials here and there and we now know it's not strong enough for e-bike use but it'll please a a racing market uh and i think we'll probably just see more of that kind of uh backwards engineering yeah yeah it does seem that way because ultimately if you're a product if you're a product r&d person and you're looking at the prospect of developing two of something versus developing one of something you're probably going to develop the one and just have it accommodate both and and if you're going to choose one side of that coin to compromise you're probably going to compromise the analog side unfortunately yep yep no all right oh, well. well that's my thought on that that's not really not really necessarily a, a good or bad thing it's just something something that i've observed so we'll yeah. see we'll see where that goes um all right well i have one psa if you don't mind my sharing that and then we can wrap up um so public service announcement for today uh it's another mountain bike related thing and i just want to remind everyone out oh, there gravel bike or could be a gravel bike basically any bike that has a sliding suspension you know telescoping suspension element um but th- consider this your public service announcement that you are probably overdue to service the oil bath in your suspension fork. Because if you don't remember the last time you've done it, it's probably time. Uh, and my guess is that you probably also haven't noticed the kind of slow and steady degradation in the performance of that suspension fork. And if you were to go ahead and redo that oil bath, you'd probably be amazed at how good your suspension fork used to feel. Mm. Uh, I would I would add to that like the the biggest reason to change that oil bath is for 
it's kind of preventative maintenance. You get all the dirt out from underneath the seals and that dirt uh, that gets stuck underneath the seals is what kind of abrades away at the, the system, most notably like the, the sliding surfaces. So the stanchions can get scored and then it's a very expensive repair bill once your fork starts leaking. Uh, so it's that's kind of why the brands recommend doing it so frequently is to almost guarantee against such wear. Uh, but I would I would extend that uh, PSA to all um, telescoping components of your bike. So the rear, it applies to the rear shock and also your dropper post. Dropper post. Mm-hmm. How, how frequently is it recommended you do that? It, 50 it, hours. Yeah, like it, it varies a little bit by, from brand to brand. But yeah, 50 hours of riding time is usually the recommendation. Um, mm. But I think if some people were to actually do the math, I, I would bet that there are people running them out there for like 500 hours yeah. Um, and just not even, not even thinking about it. But generally speaking, I would say for most riders at minimum, once a season, like absolute bare minimum, but more likely it's probably two to three times a season. Um, and it's one of those things that seems very daunting, uh, as a daunting a task, but it's actually incredibly, incredibly simple to do. Um, it, it's literally a 10 minute process if you know what you're doing. Um, and if you don't know what you're doing, you're talking about half an hour and maybe a little bit of mess, but it's not that big of a deal. And it's, it, it, that's definitely a process that is very well worth learning what, how to do it. Um, because it does have a very big impact on your fork, uh, suspension component or sliding components in general, not just in terms of performance, but as Dave said, it also could prevent a very, very big repair bill down the road. So, uh, just something yep. to keep in mind. Yeah. And, and that, that repair, that massive repair bill is, far more common than most people realize i mean a a busy bike shop would probably have multiple examples every week of scored stanchions and worn out dropper posts uh, oh yeah shafts and and yeah like bug it up rear shocks and 100 percent. it's 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 a very very commonly neglected area of the bike um and yeah I, i think 50 every 50 hours is probably on the conservative side but it's um yeah as james says if you do it minimum once a year and if you're riding a lot two three times a year you'll you'll be absolutely great um and in terms of skill set wise uh, yeah it's not super difficult to do just the the splash oil and i'd liken it to probably bleeding a brake in terms of difficulty oh like i, I would almost say it's easier because yeah like it, it's hard to mess up it, it's if 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 you're a person who doesn't think too much about changing your changing the oil in your engine, for example, mm. uh, this is way easier. But and and not a completely dissimilar concept. Mm. You know, I've definitely seen people mess it up though. So <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> okay, okay, fair. Yeah, it's not it's not impossible yeah. to mess up, but it's it's not super hard. It, it's not super easy. That sorry, it's not super hard to mess up. Yeah, um, yeah, and no, so. it doesn't. Uh, you can generally get away with it with uh, very basic tools as well. Yeah. Yep, totally. So, all right. Well, anyway, that will wrap up our show for today. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, and this show is completely member funded. So if you are not already a member of, uh, of the Escape Collective, please head over to escapecollective.com. We're actually running a special right now for the Tour de France. So you, there's a little bit of a discount, I believe, for membership. Um, yeah, how about that? Um, and uh, if you are already a member, I guess, as I said earlier, please tell your friends about Escape Collective because it certainly does make this thing a more viable thing if we get more members. Uh, so it's just something to keep in mind. And if you are listening to this podcast, if you're a regular listener and you listen to us week in, week out, and you are not a member, um, well, maybe consider becoming a member because it'd be pretty helpful. I'm not going to give you the guilt trip, but 
that that'll be my subtle reminder. Uh, also, if you are James almost looked angry there. Yeah, <laughs> if you are also a regular regular listener and you like what you hear uh, on Geek Warning, please make sure you head over to iTunes and give us a rating and review because that certainly does help grow our audience and helps the show in general. So that would be very much appreciated. Uh, that's all we got for today. So uh, unless anyone, unless any, yeah. Unless either of you have anything else to add, that'll wrap it up for this week, and we'll see you next week on Geek Warning. 